0: Morning, church family. Let's start off with a brief confession. Used to in my younger pastor days, uh, I would lay out my clothes before, uh, like Saturday night. Now I'm inclined to, you know, I still wake up earlier than normal. It's dark. I get dressed in the dark, and this happens. I accidentally wear Philadelphia green. <laughs> und- <laughs> Yeah, no that's not a meant to elicit applause this is a time of confession and repentance and then and then uh delighting that my wife did wear her no not that one the patriots put it back on babe come on this is we're off to a terrible start here there it is there it is even Steelers fans can be converted <clears throat> good to see good to see all right, so listen, for, for just a few precious minutes here, we're going to leave the game behind, we're going to push all that stuff out, and uh, actually, we're going to start by jumping back about 25 years uh, to a far less enjoyable and fun-filled time. Uh, Los Angeles was on fire. Do you guys remember? It was the, um, I guess, the afternoon of the Rodney King verdict, the guy who said, can't we all just get along? Yeah. Yeah. Um, A videotape, for those of you who weren't around or at least don't remember 25 years ago, a videotape had surfaced. It had shown this guy uh, beaten uh, harshly, mercilessly, but those who had done the beatings were exonerated. Uh, And then so beginning that evening, if the verdict came out in the afternoon, beginning that evening, and I think it was about a six-day period um, in frustration and exasperation, And rage, south-central L.A. just exploded. Fire, vandalism, riots, and rocks. And you guys will remember uh, the footage of an innocent man being pulled out of his truck cab, um, a man who had absolutely nothing to do uh, with anything that was going on, um, dragged and beaten to the ground, until... Fewer of us will remember this. Another man named Benny Newton, a man who, in the words of Brian Chappell, will forever honor the office of pastor, he also entered into that mob holding nothing but a Bible to protect him. And he shouted out, you must stop this. This man has done nothing wrong. And he began to take the blows on his own back until finally, in fatigue or shame or a mixture of the two, finally, the mob turned away and went away. Benny Newton, he entrusted his life, literally, to the living out of what God's word says. It was the truth of God's word that carried him into that violence. Can you even imagine to bank your life on living out this book that we open up together every Sunday morning? And then it turns out, well, that's precisely what an experienced pastor named Paul Is exhorting a younger pastor named Timothy to do, and us as well, to bank our lives on the living out of this word. Um, My name is Travis Bond, I serve as senior pastor here. If you're a first-time guest this morning and I see several faces uh, that I don't recognize, super glad you're here, welcome. Um, We are right now in Sermon 5 of 7 working through a book called 2 Timothy. Um, Two letters that the experienced pastor Paul wrote to this pastor, Timothy, part of what's called the pastoral epistles. 1 Timothy was all about how to structure the church. 2 Timothy, written from prison, Is all about how to structure your life. Um, So if you haven't done so already, I encourage you to open up in your Bibles and read along with us. Um, If you want to use one of the church Bibles, this is on page 996. And what we're going to read now is really a strategy for uh, living. Um, Last week, first half of 2 Timothy chapter 3, it was all about counterfeit Christianity, uh, the very real dangers of imitation faith. In our midst, and maybe to a certain extent, even in our hearts. Um, But now we're gonna we kind of turn the corner away from that, and Paul is gonna write to Timothy, saying, "But you, Timothy, okay? But by the by the power of Christ, no matter what swirls around you, Timothy, I want you to grow through what you go through." After listing all of those verses, now he says, "But you, Timothy, is different." Let's read God's word. Paul's second letter to Timothy, chapter three. Pick it up at verse ten. This now is the very word of the Lord. You, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, and at Lystra, which persecutions I endured. Yet from them all the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. While evil people and imposters will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it. the reading of God's Word. If you've been around church world for a while, then you will know that segments of the church um, have sometimes indulged in a little bit of a feeding frenzy when it comes to end times and all of that uh, that goes with it. So uh, beginning, front end of the sermon, quick theological course correction for anybody who needs it. Biblically speaking, the last days are what? The last days run... From the time of the crucifixion, resurrection, ascension, all the way to the time of Christ's second coming. Okay, biblically speaking, when you read last days, that's what's being talked, it's this period of time between Christ's first advent and his second advent. So when we talk about living in the last days, um, particularly if you're brand new to church, we do not mean that in like some weird sci-fi movie kind of way. Um, We mean uh, because we exist in post-crucifixion, but pre-second coming, Medway Community Church, is living in the already and the not yet. The already and the not yet, right? That Christ's reign is established already, but it's it's being contested, so it's not yet lived out in perfection and, and its fullness. So, all that to say, what Carl showed us last week in the first half of chapter three is Paul writing to Timothy saying, hey, given that, the last days, this is what you should expect. If you kept your Bible open... That's what those first nine verses are all about. Back up in verse 1. But understand this, that in the last days, there will come times of difficulty. And then Paul proceeds to lay out what that looks like. Well, What kind of difficulty? He uses 19 different terms. He describes selfish behavior. Quote, lovers of money, lovers of self, proud, arrogant. He then describes socially destructive behavior abusive, disobedient to parents. He then describes behavior that's the, the very inversion of goodness at the end of verse three. Terms like ungrateful, unholy, heartless. And we could you know go on and on through these verses that these are the consequences of a creation that's disconnected from a creator. Praise God, when you and I look around, look around at the world around us, we can agree, well, we're not all as bad as we could be. That's because of something called common grace. We're not all as bad as we could be, right? We could all kick the dog one more time, I suppose. The point of these nine verses is that this is characteristic of the age. Look around and you will see. We're slanderous, without self-control, not loving good, having the appearance of godliness, verse five, but denying its power, this is what a a fallen world looks like in the last days. So how ought the church respond to that? How in the midst of those 19 phrases and terms, how do we still grow through what we go through? glad you asked, Paul says. Because a strategy for doing just that is what we then find in verses 10 through 17. Okay, strategy for living out the gospel in these last days. In so many words, Paul offers us uh, three imperatives, at least implied to-dos. Here's the first one. Watch models of holiness. Watch models of holiness. Of holiness, I'm thinking about verse 10 here. You, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecution and sufferings. Remember, Paul, he suffered greatly in places like, he lists them out there, Lystra and Iconium and Antioch, where it was all riots and rocks. And now he's saying, from a Roman prison cell, Timothy... Watch me. You've been watching me. Watch me. Or to borrow from his letter to the church in Corinth, be imitators of me even as I am of Christ. Okay? Pause button. (laughs) Reality check. Have you ever walked up to someone and actually said, I want you to know what it looks like to follow Christ, so you should watch me? It sounds a little cocky, doesn't it, at best? I suppose it's in how you say it. Because when you think about it, that is the scope of discipleship. Here's what I mean. If you're even a halfway decent parent, (laughs) if you're even a halfway decent parent, you know that what is caught is far more important than what is taught. That our our kids, they, they, they understand, they learn so much more from what we show rather than what we just say. Okay, we know that with parenting. Why do we forget it when it comes to discipleship? That immature Christians need models of maturity. In a decaying world then, we got to be thoughtful about who we select as our heroes, Christian. Hebrews 13, remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. This is really important that we get in the habit, particularly those of us who are at a young age, that we get in the habit of regularly looking around and saying, who can teach me? Who can model out for me living Christianly? Who who can teach me about diligent study of God's word? Who can show me what, what passionate, humble evangelism looks like? Who can show me what it looks like to be a Christian and face down cancer? Who can show me what it looks like to be a Christian and deal with tremendous financial success? That we're looking around for models of holiness in the midst of this, and simultaneously, we're seeking to be models of holiness. Right? The, the understanding that a sure mark of the Christian life that's growing, sanctification, is that there's less and less daylight between the private you and the public you. That's a sure sign of Christian maturity that more and more the private you and the public you are kind of the same thing. So for instance, if we were to put on the screens video highlights of your past month, would your church family Be surprised. And would we be surprised in a good way? (laughs) Or a not so good way? Would we be surprised? If we could put it up there on the screens, the way you spoke to your spouse, the time spent with your kids, the time spent with your Savior. Would we be surprised by the things you say at work? the way you fill your free time, the way you spend your money. In these last days, we've got to watch for models of holiness and be models of holiness. And, and, and I would add um, as a PS to that, that, that surely nowhere is this matter more than with our kids Because our children, listen, they are assaulted on a daily basis by a secularized, self-focused world and life view. I don't care how you're educating your children, public, private, homeschool, no matter how we do it. They are being assaulted by a world and life view that says it is all about you and your satisfaction and what you want. And then, quite frankly, many of us, we're just gonna end up sending off our kids to pagan colleges where they're gonna be indoctrinated in that stuff at the very same time that they're finally learning to think like grownups. And if there is any hope at all in our children remaining steadfast, and this becomes then an anchor of their lives, then this has got to be what they say. My parents' life, was beautiful. My mom and my dad, if they're blessed to have both a mom and a dad, they loved me. And they loved each other. And they loved Jesus. And no matter all the stuff that I'm hearing, I want what they have. No matter what may come, which is what carries us into our second strategy here. Endure trials to faithfulness. First strategy for living in the last days, watch models of holiness. Second strategy, endure trials to faithfulness. I'm at verse 12 now. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while people, while evil people and imposters will go on from bad to worse deceiving and being deceived. Hmm. I know not everyone in this room claims to be a Christian. And if you're just beginning to explore this stuff again, man, I'm so grateful you're here. And I want you to know, MCC, this is a safe place to ask questions and to work through doubts and and struggles. We, We very much want this to be that. Um, I also suppose that in a room this size, there might be a few of us who fit that verse 13 description of imposters. But I know my church family, and I think, in fact, I'm pretty confident that most of us here really do, quote, desire to live a godly life. And if that is your desire, then I do not want you to miss the next phrase that all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. See, according to Paul, trials are an expected result of faithfulness. Now, of course, persecution will be far less in a, in a nation or a state that, where uh, Christian principles have been brought to bear over generations. But still, The the, the, the gospel will always be under assault by a world that is deeply hostile to the things of God. Lord willing, very few of us will ever face beatings or death, but all of us who desire to live a godly life, if you take the Bible at its word, we will face at least subtle threats by way of social rejection. And God's desire is that even in those dark times, maybe particularly in those dark times, you would grow through what you go through. So folks, if, if you're thinking about becoming a Christian, if you've kind of been hanging around on the edges and you've been hearing the stuff and community of grace, it's beautiful to you and it's appealing and and, and the, the, the things that we're reading in the scriptures, they're compelling, and you. now you're thinking about making that move and calling upon Christ as your savior. I want you to count the cost that when Jesus invites us to pull our boats up on the shore and follow him, listen, this is no invitation for religious wimps, for, for weekend warriors. What Christ invites us to is a, a robust and muscular kind of faith. And so I pray, dear God, may MCC never be a church where we think it is just okay to be a taker rather than a maker, a maker of disciples. That we're, we never become a church where the casual Christian is, is just comfortable rather than called, you know, indulged, rather than inspired coddled rather than challenged that milk toast kind of christianity is the kind of religion that then leads to these verse 13 imposters who go from bad to worse deceiving and being deceived note the progression there that what this means is that there's trajectories in life you know look at folks who are well past you in age and what will you often find <laughs> that these trajectories in life, they take us in one of two directions. Either we become more holy and more loving, or we become more cynical and more angry. If you've been with us since January, this is a repeated theme in this letter. And I have hope that you've picked up on that. That Paul is very concerned about those who turn away from the faith, that's chapter 1. He's very concerned about those whose irreverent babble is like gangrene, resulting in um, quarrels about words, that's chapter 2. He's concerned about counterfeit Christians who have an appearance of godliness, but deny its power, that's chapter 3. And now here in verse 13... He's concerned about those who are imposters. See, in a fallen world, there's always going to be this mixture of the wheat and the chaff, right? Sheep and the goats, Matthew 25. So how do we endure? How do we continue in what we have learned even in suffering? Well, that's our final point. So we're building out this strategy for living in the last days. You've got to watch models of holiness. You've got to endure trials to faithfulness. And then last one, trust scripture for godliness. Trust scripture for godliness. I'm in verse 14 now. Continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, And how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings. you remember back in chapter 1 how um, it was Timothy's grandmother, Lois, and his mom, Eunice, who had taught him about who God was and had brought him up to be a God-fearer? It's an incalculable privilege to be taught the scriptures from childhood. Those of you who are still in childhood... It is a privilege. It is a privilege to be taught God's word. I'm told um, last Sunday, we set another record for our kick-at-night attendance. Um, And it was wild and crazy in all of the good ways. And I think to myself two things when I heard that. Number one, praise God for our teachers and our game leaders and our craft leaders and our assistants. And the second thing, I think, is praise God for moms and dads who are willing to place their children, or if they're a little bit older, to place their youth in environments where no matter what else is happening, they are being taught the Bible. And why do we believe the Bible is so important? Well, because of verse 16. All scripture is breathed out by God. And it's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. The Greek behind that is theop, noustos, theo theogod, pneuma is breath or spirit depending on context. And saying here that, that when we take the Bible into our hands, we, we're taking the authoritative word of God as if he expired, as if he breathed it out. That's the conviction you understand. Here's the freeway, now we get to the exit ramp. This is the conviction that led a guy like Benny Newton to walk into a mob protected with nothing but the Bible in his hands. The belief that this is our only infallible rule for faith and life. The belief that this says, if my hope is in Christ, my hope is not in this world, and there awaits for me a treasure and a glory far greater than anything this world can offer, so I'm gonna walk into that mob. And it just makes me, ha, <laughs> as a model. It's a model of holiness. And then I also have to admit okay, well, if, this, if the whole thing's God's word, if the whole thing's theopneustos, it's breathed out by God, then that, I suppose, includes the parts that are kind of uncomfortable. You, listen, you can cut out the parts you don't like. You can do that, okay? You can dismiss the stuff that, does, that just kind of rubs you the wrong way. It doesn't really fit with your life and what you're, you're aiming for. That's fine. You can do that. Just understand, when you do that, you will then wind up. After you're done with your cutting and your trimming, you're going to wind up with a Bible that looks a lot less like God and a lot more like God made us in his image and we've been returning the favor ever since, right? But when a community of grace is committed to preaching the whole counsel of God's word and hearing the whole counsel of God's word. Uh, Martin Luther, one of the reformers, he had a saying, he said that, um, that the church is God's mouth house. Uh, that's pretty good, you know? Here, here's the church, here's the steeple, open the word, and God speaks to his people. <laughs> Calvin, another one of the reformers, He said that God has so chosen to anoint the lips and tongues of his servants that when they speak, the voice of Jesus comes out. And I think, ah, that's great. That when you and I faithfully teach and speak God's word, it will be as if Jesus is speaking. Um, chapel tells the story of a a youth pastor friend who wanted to teach this doctrine that's called the inspiration of scripture really it should be the expiration though Theopneustos breathed out he wants to teach this doctrine um, this youth pastor to his youth group Um, so he came up with this idea of seating all the students around the perimeter um, in the room and then putting one folding chair in the center and then scriptures all around uh, sitting on the chairs and then the students come in and they pick up the, the scriptures and the idea is that one student at a time would be invited to sit on the seat in the middle blindfolded and share you know anything any struggle any challenge that they have in their life and then different students would be invited to you know when their scripture fits to read that into the individual's life Um, Sounds like a good idea. Only problem is the students thought it sounded like a really dumb idea. (laughs) Total fail, uh, I guess. Um, Kids were not into it at all. Uh, Basically turned into comedy hour. Um, Those of you who work with youth, sometimes it it seems like such a fantastic idea until you actually do it. This was one of those things. um, The most significant challenge that was even offered was I didn't study for Mrs. Bailey's history exam, but I still need an A. Um, Turns out there's not a lot of great verses for that. (laughs) And then a new girl volunteered. She said, I'll sit in the chair. First thing that came out of her mouth. I am so miserable. I don't know if I can stand my life anymore. And you know, you can imagine the environment, right? After 30 or 40 minutes of kind of making a joke of the whole thing, kids were embarrassed. They looked down, they looked at their shoelaces. Someone looked at the paper in their hand, and then they read it. But I am faithful. I will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, I will show you a way out so that you can endure. The girl in the, in the center said, I feel like no one cares about me. And after a moment, someone else read, but I have loved you with an everlasting love. And I have called you with an everlasting kindness. And then she said, my stepfather kicked me out last night and said, never come back. And someone else read, but I will never leave you, nor will I forsake you blindfold comes off, you know, there's some tears, some of the girls in the group wrap their arms around her, and that, that new girl who was sitting in the center, she says to the youth pastor, why doesn't God speak to me that way? And he said, oh, sweetie, he does. And that, I guess, becomes a launching point there for a whole series on this doctrine And what we really mean when we say that the Bible is God's word, our only infallible rule for all of faith and life. And listen, I get it, okay? I live in the real world. I know sometimes opening a book is not nearly as dramatic as we might like it to be. I understand that. We think, oh, God, if you would just speak to me the way I, you know, write it in the clouds and shout it on the thunder, but if we think about it for a moment, if we did, the clouds would blow away and the thunder would just fade. So God says, I got an idea, how about I just write it down for you? <laughs> and that's precisely what he did. That wherever you are, he, he, invites, he invites us, let my words speak to you so that you can grow through whatever it is you go through. Listen, you and I, we live in an age where we are, we have access to more information. We have access to more um, information than at any point in the history of the world. In the palm of our hand, literally. But it cannot make you wise unto salvation. Verse 15. Only scripture is breathed out by God. Last verse that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. God's word teaches us to grow through what you go through, to grow up into the person of Christ. Because understand this, in the last days, there will be times of difficulty. So watch for models of holiness, endure trials to faithfulness, and trust scripture for godliness. Thank you for joining us for today's message. Medway Community Church would love to welcome you as our guest one day soon. Our church family meets every Sunday morning for worship and also offers a wide variety of small group and ministry opportunities. To learn more, please visit us on the web at medwaycommunitychurch.org. We look forward to seeing you soon.